We had some fantastic guests, uh, you know, on Honest Money through the year of 2021, and and so many of them were so willing to share their advice and their wisdom and their experiences and and to give us information that we couldn't necessarily find in a in a textbook or on a normal radio show or you know on the internet so so we decided uh, you know what what we needed to do for you was to find all the best nuggets of information that we could get from our guests package it together in 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 a podcast so that you could get what we felt were some of the best thoughts and ideas uh, throughout the year of 2021 so I hope you enjoy it and I hope you find some value. In this segment, we've got a few guests sharing their ideas on how to start their investment journey. And for me, I think it's, uh, you know, the most important thing in life is, you know, if you want to get somewhere, you've got to take the first step. So, so let's hope you, you get some great uh, ideas from, from these guests and on how to start your investment journey. When I started with like the personal finance stuff and I was really trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing, I actually met um, met up with a financial advisor. Um, I won't name the bank that I went to, but I spoke to one of their financial advisors. And now looking back at the, at the things that he was saying and what he was suggesting with what I know now, I realized just how how vulnerable you can be like how vulnerable you can be if you don't have the right information when you get that advice and i think that's a very big thing that like i'm really trying to make sure that people have enough information to at least understand what they're doing by themselves before they even reach out to to a professional yeah and i think you're right you know i think we we often feel intimidated as well by by you know this person who's got a title and we think okay well they must know everything and whatever they're telling us we should just agree and don't ask questions because they must know um, and the sad reality is that there are some fantastic advisors out there but there's some shockers uh, and and the more we know as as clients the more um, intelligent questions we can ask of them uh, the better the advice will be you find people you talk to someone in January and they're saying that they want to actually start like investing this is the year they start investing and then you talk to them at the end of the year and they haven't started because they're still doing all of this research and they want to make sure that they have everything figured out before they actually take that initial step and i think that's that's a big stumbling block because like one of the biggest things with investing is the earlier you start the better off you will be right and in terms of like how how to start, I think you really just really have to take the tumble, to be honest, um, and take the first step. Obviously, you do want to make sure that you understand the investments that you're making. But once you actually have some skin in the game, you can actually start figuring out what you what you don't know and start filling out those those gaps. If you don't start, then you never know what you what you don't know. There's one of those um, bank adverts that says you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. Uh, and, exactly. and I think you're, you're right, you know, if we're, if we're sitting here talking about financial freedom all the time and people are listening to, to podcasts, watching your YouTube, reading books and, uh, and actually never pulling the trigger to start actually saving and investing, then uh, they'll be highly educated and, and on, on money in decades time and still no, no richer than they were the day they started. When people say to me, explain compounding, I always say, well, you buy one cow, you buy one bull. Uh, give them a bit of time. Give them, uh, you know, the, the the right space and food and stuff, and watch. In a little bit of time, you'll have a you'll have a calf, and and there, there's your your two cows have created another one, and that's that's compounding, right? And and 
And I think farming farming such a great way to understand all markets because eventually, you know, markets are seasonal, like farming is. You know, um, you get bad luck, which takes you out. Uh, and and you know if you're not careful and you haven't got uh, provision for for the bad rainy day, uh, you know you, you you can lose you, you can lose everything and it's all the same. You know I mean the money principles and and the principles around around farming are are, are universal. In this section we we were with uh, Grant Locke from from Artfest uh, and myself talking about tips on on global investing. There are some countries, Switzerland's a great example of this, mm. where their bank account is also the place where you buy shares, where you buy unit trust, exchange traded funds. So that is an administration platform, a stockbroking platform, and a bank account all in one. And obviously, you know, jurisdiction like that is, 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 a, is one worth considering from the point of view that they don't charge you taxes and all those kinds of things, well regulated, and it's giving an all in one account. The, the trick there, you know, the, um, w- w- one of my industry colleagues would say, you know, they, they charge like a wounded buffalo. So you've got to be careful with the Swiss that you choose something that, that, that if you're going to go there, that they're charging you the right fees. They're not, they're not too expensive. In this section, I'm still I'm discussing global investments with Grant Locke from Artvest, but but now I'm on the other side of the coin where I need to explain my approach to global investing. I, I'm I'm quite a big fan of phasing my money into investments, so, so I'm I'm always wary of taking. So let, let's just say I, I, I've converted my money. I've got hundred thousand dollars on the other side. I want to put it into a global index. Um, the likelihood is that I'm going to take that hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to cut it up into six equal portions, and I'm going to put it over six months. And the reason is that that world markets uh, just generally are incredibly volatile, like like the JSEs mm-hmm. as well. And so I want to average out the the, the, the prospects of volatility of, of prices falling or rising all the time. And and the worst thing that could happen is I put my hundred thousand dollars in today, and tomorrow the whole stock market falls apart, and I could have bought it at a thirty percent discount. Mm. At the same time, I don't want to sit there with my hundred thousand dollars in cash, earning no interest, waiting for the stock market to fall by thirty percent because it could take seven years for that to happen. Mm. So, so I like to feed my money in. The only time I don't do that is if the stock market, just by sheer dumb luck, I've sent the money out, the stock market's collapsed before I've had a chance to actually invest. And if it's a huge drop, you know, if it's one of those 30, 40, 50% drops, then I'd be really greedy because then mm. I'm going to get greedy when everyone else is a, a fearful and I'm going I'm to invest my money into the markets very quickly. Uh, if the market's trending down a little bit, I'm going to stay with my six-month view. And if the market's shooting up, definitely going to stay with my six-month view. In this section, we're going to be talking about one of the more controversial areas of, of the financial world, uh, and, and that's crypto investing. I hope you enjoy. Because of the volatility of the crypto price, you really have a very, very you don't have good sight of what you're going to get out at the other end. I mean, if you wait a couple of months or so, you could have a massive swing in the value of Bitcoin. So at the moment, if you are considering Bitcoin or cryptos as an alternative way to get money out of the country, you'd probably rather stick to the traditional method at this point in time. In this segment with Grant Locke from Artfest, I'm discussing my views on how you can get the best return on your investments. It's not always as easy as you think or as simple as it, as, as it looks. I think uh, that if we're chasing returns, if we're chasing the ability to kind of get choose the best share, the best property, whatever it is, uh, the likelihood is we're going to end up with not the best. We're going to end up actually on the other side of that spectrum. So, so that's one thing. 
And then the second thing is that uh, if you can just stick stick to an investment, so you put the money in and you've chosen, you know, I know I talk about a lot, you, you buy an index and you just stay invested. Mm. That makes you exceptional. So although you're getting the average because you're getting the average of the stock market index, that's the performance that you're getting is the average of all of these different investments put together, put in an index. Very few people will buy an index and stay invested for 5, 10, 20, 30 years. So, so now, by just sticking the course, being in the average investment, what people call the average investment, you become exceptional because you're allowing your capital to grow on itself. You're allowing your money to make money babies, and those babies have babies, and before you know it, you've got thousands and thousands of money babies all over the place, and you are in a position of financial freedom. And I think that's the key, right? That's what we're mm. all aiming for, is that financial freedom. But it's about saying... I'm not trying to get the best return next week, next month. I'm not trying to chop and change things. I'm just going to stay consistent and then add to it as I can and, and try not to sell unless something's gone horribly wrong outside there uh, where I need to make a change. But if it's just an index, you should be a seller kind of when you absolutely need the money one day to live off and, no, and not for any other reason. In these three segments, Grant Locke from Outfest and I are talking about uh, how to develop an investment time horizon, which is important for you because that determines how much risk you can take with your investments. We also discuss how to work out a retirement budget and then to, to give you a calculation method, you know, a simple and easy way for you to figure out how much capital you need from your investments at retirement. Enjoy. So, so the time horizon for when you're going to access the money is key in deciding how much risk you can take. And once you know how much risk you can take, it's actually 100% linked to the assets that you choose. So, so I think if you say, I'm happy to send my money to an investment for five years or longer, I, I actually think almost five to seven years or mm. longer, then you can start to have a huge bias to shares as an asset class. And, and I think also th then we're starting to get into the global space because I'm really worried to send my money out, uh, you know, to send it overseas to be a global investor if I know I'm going to bring the money back and need it in three years' time. It doesn't make sense to me to take the currency risk okay. as well. So and, but also the costs. I mean, there's the cost in getting the money out, the cost, the repatriation cost of getting the money in, the selling, the, the bid offer spread on your investments. There's a whole lot of cost in, involved in not just, you know, um, taking it out of the investments, but also moving, repatriating the money back to the country, your home country. Yeah. Actually, brilliant point. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's a it's a key thing that a lot of us would lose sight of. You know, mm. we we just think you know things go up, investments go up, so we don't have to worry about the costs. And actually, costs in a low return, low interest rate environment could absolutely wipe out any growth. Absolutely, you've, you've yeah. had. So I think it's a fair point. But I think one of the reasons why your time horizon is so critical is because, and you know, as you as you sort of push it into, as you increase your time horizon, you increase more of your allocation to listed equities is actually because of inflation. I'd like to hear a bit of your thoughts about why why inflation is such a risk. I, I feel, um, you know, I, I think of inflation in the same way I, th I think of a slow poison. Mm. It, it's there's no dramatic event that says to you, "Hey, Grant, your your cost of living uh, it has suddenly you know risen, and the buying power of your money has 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 gone." Mm. Uh, there isn't a headline, unfortunately, that we get in the you know in the media that says. Watch out your cost of living, you know, for you as a person has now changed and, and pay, pay attention. So what happens is it just gradually eats away at the ability for our money to buy what it used to buy. Mm. And, and that's, a, that's inflation. And, and, and that's the thing that probably keeps me awake at night when I'm, when I'm planning investments for people is they, they don't have, they don't look at this. They don't, it's not something they focus on. Mm. They're so worried about uh, stock markets rising or falling because the media is shouting this at them. Mm. It's, it's something that they get bombarded with. But 
if they can't let the the buying power of their investments grow at a rate that's at least growing at the same pace as the as the buying power of their money is being eroded they're going backwards mm. and it's and it's that slow poison is just awful and unfortunately by the time people realize it they can't they can't make it up anymore no that that's what happens in retirement you know you're 10 15 years into retirement suddenly you wake up one morning in the month the income that gets paid out of your annuity is not enough to be able to afford the things that you need to to maintain your standard of living and that's really the risk and i think you know and i think your your metaphor of using it as a poison is probably i mean i've never heard it before and i think it's a phenomenal metaphor because that's exactly what it is it's a slow erosion of your your money but it also it impacts on what you do with yourself every single day yeah. so i think i mean the other point to make is that you know over the last 120 years that we've been looking at market data the only asset class that we know of that has reliably outperformed inflation with a decent margin has been asset equities Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons that's the major reason why as the time horizon increases that we are start to use more a greater allocation to listed equities in the portfolios. And I thought to myself this is a great way for me to do a back of the max spot calculation to understand do I just have enough money? How much of my money can I send overseas? So I just take us through the bang and roll please. Well, um, I, I want to make it maybe a bit simpler because every time we give a name to something, people uh, pe- people lose us. So, so just saying to people, um, if you want to know how much you can uh, you need to, uh, to retire, what's your lotto number? Then take your expenses and and figure out how much are you going to spend in a year. So, so now what you've got to do is you've got to say these are my regular monthly expenses, so whatever mm-hmm. that is, times it by twelve. But don't forget that you might buy a car every five years, and so take uh, the, the five-year amount divided by five to get to an annual amount that you're going to allocate to a car. Add a, a holiday amount. Add you know any other kind of irregular expenses that come up. You know if you pay for kids' education every year, whatever the deal is, put all those expenses together, and then times it by twenty-five, mm. and that will tell you how much you you need to get to uh, re- retirement. It's your financial freedom number. Let, you know, retirement sounds like such a boring thing. Okay, it's yeah, your yeah. your financial freedom number. The, the the thing is, when you do that for the first time, uh, um, you might think, "Gee, I'm I'm way off." You know, this whole thing's yeah, pointless. Never going to work. Yeah. What you need to do is do it once a year. Because what happens now is when you realize that actually, you know, it, it, I needed 25 million and I've only got one next year. If you've got two and you only need 25.2 million, you're starting to close the gap. Indexing is an important part of of the investment world, as far as I'm concerned. So, so I think that this is a really um, important segment for for people who want to understand more. If I buy the index, let's just say I buy an index that that, that consists of the the biggest companies in the world. They are. They, I've got no input in that. They are going to rise and fall dependent on what the, all the stock markets in the world think, and they push those those prices of those shares up and down. Uh, and and so, when I do that, diversification is important to me. And, and what I'm what I'm talking about now is, can I find companies that that aren't necessarily in the index, or maybe they don't make up such a big part of the index? Mm. And, and and can I find a way to get some growth that looks very different to the index? So you know, so in in the recent times. Technology companies became a huge part of the of the American index, and it was just driving the the, the prices of American indices through the roof. Mm. And so then I start to think to myself, I'm not a market timer, but but I can do a, a mathematical calculation and say, well, these are expensive. No matter mm. what, they're expensive. Are they going to carry on getting expensive? I don't know. Are they going to fall in price? I don't know. But but what I do know is, can I? 
find something that can get me into shares that don't look like that, that are cheaper. And for example, if the world does fall apart for a period of time, stock markets fall, can I find something that will fall less? And so that's that's the, the important part to me. And, and I think that I, I like to have the combination of the two. So the index, because I believe that the, over time, that'll be my big engine of growth. Mm-hmm. But then to find things that are, and shares or investment companies that look different to the index that maybe give me capital protection when the world falls apart, they're still going to lose money, but hopefully not as much. And they perform at different times and at uh, in, in different conditions. And, the, and then I'm saying to myself, one plus one gets me to two and a quarter. And, and that's what I'm really looking for. In these next two segments, I'm discussing my personal global portfolio with Grant Locke from Outfest, uh, just to share how I look at investments and then actually how I implement them for myself. It doesn't mean that that's what you need to do, but but it is just a useful guide for, for people who want to start out on their own. I want to actually show people exactly what your personal offshore portfolio is. So it's 40% in an MSCI World ETF, Exchange Traded Fund, 20% 20% in an emerging markets exchange traded fund, 20% in the Scottish, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, and 20% in the Personal Assets Trust. So, so I think putting that all together in a structure like that, uh, um, to me, th- says I'm getting that one plus one gets me to two and a quarter that I've mentioned before. But I, I mean, I, I, I think it's important to say it's most likely going to lose money in two or three out of the uh, uh, two or three years out of every 10. Mm. So, so people listening to this, when you lose money and you've decided to copy my structure, just know I'm promising you, you are going to lose money sometimes. And I'm also not promising you that you're going to double your money every year. Uh, the, the likelihood is I think it's a good growth portfolio, but we're dealing with probabilities and not guarantees. In this piece, we talk a little bit about where your money lives overseas. Uh, it's, it, the industry jargon is the domicile of your money and, and why that's so important when you're making global investment decisions. So it'll be myself and Grant Locke from Artfest discussing this really important topic. Even if it sounds boring, have a listen. I, I think it's a huge issue for us. So domicile is just a fancy word for the home of your money, honesty. Mm. So when you send your money, it needs to go the, the home of where it will actually live because you're living here, where, where does your money live? So, so domicile is important because most of us, we're, we're kind of very westernized in our approach. So, so we all, we kind of brainwashed almost that, you know, we should put our money in America because, mm. you know, the father of index investing was a guy who started Vanguard. And so Vanguard's amazing if you believe in index investing. And there's, there's so much choice. You can buy almost, you can invest in anything in the, in the, in the States. Yeah. So, so, so we kind of get brainwashed to, it, it must be America. Now, the problem with America is that when you have more than $60,000 worth of investments that are living in America, so the domicile is America, and you pass away, the, the, the American taxman is going to take 40% of your money uh, of, the, of the assets that are in America. Now, for example, if you buy my favorite share, Berkshire Hathaway, or you buy an index that's sitting in America, you buy Microsoft, Apple, it doesn't matter, uh, and, and the domicile of your money is there, they're, they are going to take... 40% of your money over, mm. over $60,000. So, so that's a big number. The same applies, for example, if you have your money living in mainland UK. So if it's in the city of London or so, what, what, you know, somewhere in the UK, the, the same would apply, but, but the amount is much bigger. It's 325,000 pounds. So, so taxes become a huge issue when you are investing that you want to avoid being taxed twice. Mm. So I'm not saying that you need to find a place where you're never going to pay tax because the reality is if you are a legit citizen, you are going to pay tax somewhere, but ideally you want to pay it once and you want to pay it here in South Africa. So choose a place, for, for example, some of the best places I think are 
Luxembourg, uh, the country of Ireland, the Channel Islands. So, the, you know, that's Jersey, Jersey Guernsey, Isle of Man, Isle of Man, Switzerland. Those are great places because their regulations are excellent. So the, the protection of investors is very good. And secondly, they don't tax you twice. They're not going to tax someone who's not a resident in those countries uh, uh, for death duties or any kind of other taxes. So, so I think avoiding double tax is a big issue. And then security that you know where your money is invested, the, the regulators will look after you and they're not going to chop and change the laws. If you're investing fairly large amounts of money overseas, then uh, it might be worth considering putting that money into a company or a foundation or a trust. Uh, th those are called legal entities and they do have some benefits. And in this segment on global investing, uh, Grant Locke and I discussed th this, uh, this topic for investors and when it's appropriate and when it's not. Using a legal entity as your offshore investment vehicle is something that I think lots of people would like to know a little bit more about. And when do I use a trust or when do I use a foundation or when do I go in my personal capacity? So I think size counts, unfortunately. So, so uh, if you're sending money overseas and it's, get, it's going to be, let's say, $100,000, just understand that $100,000 is a lot of money, but it's not enough money, for example, to justify opening a trust or opening up an offshore company or, or a foundation that you mentioned, because the running costs of those are very expensive. You know, you're probably in, you know, if you're in a good jurisdiction that we've just spoken about and, and you're, you know, with a company that's going to deliver good service with good reputation, you're probably paying two to $5,000 as a minimum mm. per year to run your, your, your structure if it's not in your name. And, and so if, you've, if you're paying $5,000 a year uh, and you've got $100,000, you're giving away 5% of the value of your investment before you've even started to grow it, before you've paid for the investment costs, et cetera. And that's just far too much mm. for cost. So, so I think the starting point is size is important. So I think to, to me, to justify any kind of a structure, you need about a million dollars. So, so that's a big number. Yeah. And then secondly, you need to have a good reason for doing it. And to me, the best reason is because you want to make sure that the money is going to go from you. If you, let's say you're a parent and you want to know that it's going to go to your children if you pass away at the right time and at the right age for them. So, you know, it's, it's, it would be silly, for example, in your world to say, well, my overseas investments go to my children and they inherit that at, at the age of 12 for, you know, if something happened to you. So, so you want to know that they are going to be taken care of while, while they're not adults and, and potentially for a few years after they're become adults uh, and, and then saying, okay, I, I know that the, the money goes to the next generation. I think that's the best reason. I have an overdraft to the tune of 20,000 rand that I would like to utilize to buy shares or invest in something that will give me maximum returns in two months at most. Please advise as to how I could go about getting this done with your assistance, of course. Thanks. Lebacha. Hi, Lebacha. I'm so glad that you're making contacts be before you decide to use your overdraft for investing, because um, I, I think there are some real danger signs here. So um, as a start, I'm going to say danger, danger, danger. Please be careful with this. Uh, I, I think my concern with with, with your um, with your potentially your plan is two things. One, um, the interest rates on an overdraft are generally very high, and so you know if you're paying an interest rate of nine percent or more. Um, it's very hard to find an investment that's you know that's a high quality that's that's able to give you a fair chance of getting a return that's more than nine percent a year without taking too much risk. Um, and, and so you know I, if I'm going to borrow money to invest, I want to make sure that my interest rate is going to be somewhere around five or six percent a year and no more than that. 
if my interest rate is you know around seven or eight or nine, then I need to think very carefully before I borrow money. And definitely, if it's more than nine percent a year, I don't want to borrow money to to make an investment decision. Uh, and, and I know that there are all sorts of people out there, you know, these these American personal finance gurus that will tell you to borrow money, and it's not a problem at all. Uh, I think that's a huge path uh, to to wealth destruction. So, so for me, my starting comment is usually debt is a weapon of wealth destruction, not wealth creation. As a second point, your, your time frame for your investment is incredibly short. So, if you want to borrow money from your overdraft for two months to make a, a, an investment. There is nothing that you can buy that, that's, that has a reasonably good chance of giving you capital growth over a two-month period. I know people will tell me that cryptocurrencies can do it and you could buy, you could be lucky and buy one share that goes up by a huge amount in a very short space of time. But all of those kinds of strategies rely on an enormous amount of luck. Good morning, Warren. My question is based on buying a car. Um, I just want to find out what advice do we have for someone who is looking to buy a car um, in terms of is it okay to buy secondhand and is it, a fin- is it wise to buy it secondhand? Um, what are some of the financial advices that you would give to someone who is looking to buy a car? I really love your question about cars, you know, and, and how to buy a car and what's the best kind of car to buy and, and, uh, and especially around the financial arrangements around that. Because I think a lot of the time, we, we get emotionally sucked into buying cars, uh, especially you know expensive cars that we don't really need, because car companies are such fantastic marketing businesses that they will um, they'll always find a way to convince us that the car that they are selling is the car we need. Um, and I think to, just to understand, you know, in South Africa, a lot of us need a car just to get to work. There isn't another way of actually getting reliable transport, and and so you know a, a car can be a tool uh, to, to generate an income stream. You know, it's the way that you, get, you, you actually are able to earn a, earn a monthly salary. So yes, I think you know, buying a car is not a bad idea. However, I think uh, we, none of us need to buy a new car. You know, anyone who says that you know, a new car is absolutely necessary and that you should never buy secondhand cars is either fooling you or fooling themselves. Uh, I, I, I specialize for myself in buying uh, cars that are, that are at least one year old and, and preferably two or three years old. Um, and my reason is that, you know, the, let's say you pay 500,000 Rand for a car, you know, but by the time it drives off the showroom floor, uh, and, you know, if it's a new car, and you take it home and you keep it in your garage for a week, the likelihood is it's already lost 50 or 60,000 Rand's worth of value. And by the end of the year, it might already have lost, you know, even more than that. And only thing, the only reason it's lost value is because it was new and now it will be called secondhand. And so I just think that that kind of a capital loss on a car really doesn't make sense to me. So, so for me, I always want to buy high quality uh, secondhand cars that are in good condition and, and then make sure that I'm, I'm able to afford the monthly re- repayments. And, and so that's my second piece of advice to you is if you're going to buy a secondhand car, you know, buy, buy a small car, buy, buy one that's, you know, yes, it needs to be safe. In other words, it needs to have good airbags, needs to have good brakes, you know, it needs, needs to be a reliable car so they can get you where you need to go. Well, I hope you enjoyed all those um, fabulous nuggets of information from, from our guests through 2021. You know, you know for me, uh, one of the ways that I learn is to, is to listen to other people's experiences, take what I can from, from the way that they've uh, learned about life and, and, and what the mistakes they've made, I think the successes they've had, and then try to adapt them to myself and to my personality and my state of life and, and I guess also just what's going on in the world. 
so, so I hope you can do the same and I hope you find uh, value from this and, and our future podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>